you like the slides with the smoke? Yes. <laughs> Anyone here into soccer? Watching soccer? No. Yes. Waking up at four a.m. No. Ten o'clock? Yes. I only watch the ten o'clock one, not the two a.m. or four a.m. Unless Australia is playing. Well, we are up to Nehemiah chapter 6. We are doing this series on uh, season to build. Nehemiah chapter 6. Israel sinned and therefore they were sent into exile. And if you remember in the 70s, there's a group called Bonnie M. Remember the famous song by the rivers of Babylon? We sat and wept when we remember Zion. They were in exile. By the way, they took the words from Psalm 137, if you're not aware. Um, they were in exile. They sinned. God sent them into exile. And God, very specific, said that you've been exiled for 70 years. And in that time, when they were in exile, the empire changed. The Persian empire came up and took over the Babylonian empire. And the Persian empire, they allowed the people to return back to their homeland. And that is where the beginning of returning to the homeland started by Zerubbabel, brought a group of people, and then Ezra, and then comes Nehemiah time when they heard of the story of these people returning back without any protection. And so he decided to respond to the calling of God to do something about it, to use his abilities, to use his network, to use everything within his resources to do something. And that led him to return to uh, asking permission from the king, return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And, and we know over the past number of uh, messages that we covered through, he encountered one after objection, one after another, non-stop. The assault is getting more and more intense. The war is almost completed. The workers had almost finished the wall. All that remained was to hang the doors. But the enemies hasn't stopped yet. They say it's not over until it's over. They keep on banging just like this morning. Germany and... Who was playing? Germany and... Mexico, is it? 95 minutes. Boom, 2-1. Okay? Sweden, Sweden, Sweden. That's right, not Mexico. Thank you very much. You, you must be watching, right? Last bit, last bit, okay, okay. Not the news. I watch the news. So it's not over until it's over. The, uh, the, the war is almost completed. And now uh, the final assault came. And this is the most fearsome and the most brutal of all because it is attacking Jeremiah as a person. And when you cannot get a country, you cannot do anything else, you attack the person. And here we are going to look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 6. Uh, but Nehemiah, of course, we know he, uh, They use different tactics They threaten Nehemiah now personally But Nehemiah is a man of focus He will not allow this kind of distraction To keep him from finishing the task that is ahead of him And there's some wonderful lesson that we can learn from Nehemiah today The outer distractions of our interests uh, Is often a reflect of an inner lack of integration in ourselves uh, we are trying to be several selves at once without all ourselves being organized by one single mastering life within us. 
There's no one person that's coordinating your inner life, and therefore we are distracted. It's a little bit like Pastor Bruce trying to organize the telephone line to move from our office to this prayer room. Uh, trying to call Telstra, trying to call MBN, this person said, you call this, you call that, you call that, and no one is there to organize it for us. And you just have to go through this process of calling 20 people, and each time you recall again, they don't know what you're talking about, pass it to another person. There's no integration in a sense. And so our outer distractions of our interests often is a reflection of our inner lack of integrations of ourselves. Uh, we are trying to be several self at once without all ourselves being organized by one single mastering life within us. So for us believers, Jesus is our Lord. So whatever we do is to honor Him and to glorify Him. And there's a single focus in the sense. And so here, Nehemiah is not going to be distracted by all this. But I'm going to give you four points here. The first thing that they are trying to do is to destroy Nehemiah. There was a plot to destroy him. Four things they were trying to do. There was a plot to destroy him. Uh, verses 1 to 3 tells us that final assault. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Gisham, and the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in gate. So it's almost done. But the enemy is not giving up yet. Sanballat and Gisham send me this message. They say, come. Come on. Let us meet together in one of the village on the plain of Ono. The plain of Ono is northwest of Jerusalem, about maybe 40 kilometers away. And somewhere between the border of Judah and, and uh, Samaria, possibly across the border. And so here they say, come on, let us meet together in this place, far away. And there's no doubt in, uh, in Nehemiah's mind that they were trying to kill him probably, to get rid of him. And he, but they were scheming to harm him. He knew, he knew that there, uh, uh, he had a certain kind of discernment to know that they were not genuine in trying to reconcile, trying to do something about it. They were actually intending to harm him. So Nehemiah was a man of discernment. There's no doubt about that. And oftentimes prayer, uh, discernment comes from prayer. Discernment comes from in touch with God. Discernment comes from knowing God's word. And discernment in scripture is a skill that enables us to differentiate. It is the ability to see issues clearly. And we desperately need to cultivate this spiritual skill that will enable us to know right from wrong, which is incredibly nowadays is not obvious anymore. They say now truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, right can become wrong, wrong can become right. Uh, we need discernment. We must be prepared to distinguish light from darkness, truth from error, best from better. Well, I'm egalitarian. He, we human beings, we are all egalitarian. We are all equal. I don't believe the ideas are equal. Ideas are not equal. There's such a thing called better ideas. There's such a thing called lousy ideas. Human beings, we are equal, but ideas are not equal. Human beings, we are egalitarian, but ideas is elitism. There's better idea. And we need discernment from God. 
And Nehemiah was very discerning. He knew that they were there to harm him and not really try to build bridges and do something about it. They were scheming to harm me. And he said, so I sent messengers to them. Nehemiah knew that. So he sent messengers to them with a wonderful reply. He said, well, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Probably takes about two days' journey. He said, why? Why? I'm doing such a great job. And not, not really esteeming himself doing such a great job. He's just saying that this is a great job. This is a great project that I'm doing. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? He was a man of decided principles. He knew exactly what he believed about the situation and he responded to the request with firm conviction. I have a big job right here. I cannot leave all of my responsibilities. And guess what? Nehemiah's reply basically was very resolved in his conviction. He was resolved in his conviction. And he said, well, no, I'm going to have this task that I need to do. And look at it. it not, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times. All right? Fifth time, they tried a different tactic. Four times! They sent me the same message. So Nehemiah has to reject each time. Constantly rejecting. Come, okay, same message back. He was very resolved in his conviction. Four times they sent me the same message. And each time, I gave them the same answer. I said, no. Simple as that. Well, friends, in a similar way, we've been called to a great task, one that we have to prioritize or we'll be, get, we'll be distracted from it. And uh, sometimes we have to, what we call plan neglect. We have to plan those things to neglect some important things in order to focus on what is ahead of us. Although Nehemiah declined to meet with his enemies, not simply because he was choosing priorities, but because he, he suspected that his well-being was at risk. And his answer to his potential detractors can still remind us how we should respond when we face potential distracting opportunities. Nehemiah said no to his enemies by stating his priorities and said, well, I have a big job here. I won't take on anything else right now because this is my focus. I need to finish this thing that is in front of me. He remained focused on the task at hand and I imagine that Nehemiah would have responded similarly even to friends wishing to throw a party in his honor. And how difficult it is to stay focused on what really matters. While most of us do not encounter threatening invitations, uh, we do face a tempting buffet of options and opportunities. And like most people at a buffet, we often fill our plates far too full. And we are like that too. We get distracted. Sometimes they flatter us. You have the ability to do this, 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 this. And you take on so much and you, at the end of the day, you achieve nothing. Parents who value time with their children end up chauffeuring more than parenting as they transport their youngsters to endless activities. Lay ministers who serve effectively in one area of church will find themselves being offered to do other things and as such, they take on more than what they cope. And even taking on something that is not their gifts. Nor are pastors free from these temptations. In fact, we may be prone, may, maybe more prone to them. 
inviting here, invitation to preach there, preach there, to this country and that country, to this mission trip and that mission trip. And as a result, you neglect your call of duty to be a pastor to your local church. And I have a principle, I will never accept any invitation on Sunday morning. Easy to get distracted. I was asked by two mission board to be part of their board. I said, no, thank you very much. My role is to pastor a church. Of course, it is not always wrong to minister in other settings as God sovereignly directs. But I have to recognize you are my own tendency to lose focus and thereby diminishing your effectiveness as what you are supposed to be doing. And like Nehemiah, we must learn to evaluate new opportunities in light of God's higher call upon our lives. We need to remember that staying focused means sometimes saying no. I like what uh, uh, Caroline uh, shared last week in her testimony. Uh, this job offered her full time. I said, no, I only want three days. Why? Because I want two days to continue to serve where I am in the church. Sometimes you have to say no. In order to stay focused, you have to say no to certain things. I see people take on business in my community uh, Sunday and end up doing work on Sunday and and all kinds of, as a result, no chance to come to church, no time to, to attend cell group, no time to, to participate in, in, in church activities because of business, because of work. And sometimes we just have to sacrifice if we want to focus. And so there was a distraction, there was a plot to destroy Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's reply was simply re, re, resolute in his conviction. There's this job that I need to do, I'm going to do it. But it's not over. It's more fearsome, more brutal. The second plot was to discredit him. Not just only to attempt to destroy him, but now after four times asking him to come out to meet, he's not re responding. He was resolute in his conviction. He believed that God has entrusted him to finish the work. Now let's move on to another level. There was a plot now to discredit him. Look at what they say. And then the fifth time, Sambalot sent his aid to me, with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter. Now, just think about an unsealed letter. When you send a letter to someone unsealed, if you unseal a letter, what is it for? Purposely, what is it purpose? What's the purpose? It's so that somehow people get to read it, isn't it? So the whole purpose was not the message itself, but the whole purpose is to spread some kind of rumor. And you know what was written in the letter? In which was written this, alright? It is reported among the nations. And Gisham says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore you are building the war. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. Man, it's quite a, quite a very, very convincing kind of uh, way of trying to discredit. Well, not only you build a war, not only you want to make a king, you even already appointed prophets to come and declare you as king. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, which is the Persian Empire, so come, if you don't want this letter to get to him, you don't want this rumor to spread, to let the people know that you are actually having these motives in mind, then you better come and meet me. 
So you realize that the, the, the kind of offer is intensified now. And so while Nehemiah refused the invitation for the fourth time, Sambalat know that he must change his tactics and the suggestion to meet in Ono Plain was repeated a fifth time. But on this occasion, the messengers also carried an unsealed letter suggesting an agenda for the proposed conference. And clearly, as I said, Sambalat was less interested in communicating with Nehemiah than in spreading rumor through the unsealed letter. No doubt the servant made the, the make sure that many eyes saw that letter en route from Samaria to Jerusalem. And so the Sambalat letter contained two accusations. Firstly, he, the Jews planned to rebel against the Persians and Nehemiah intends to become king. And Nehemiah had already appointed prophets in Jerusalem to kind of support, to hail him as king. And so what was Nehemiah's reply? Wouldn't it be tempting to try to kind of explain yourself? No, no, I'm not going to do that. No, 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 no. What did, what did uh, uh, Nehemiah do? Nehemiah was just secure in his conscience. He was very secure in his conscience. He simply just said, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. You're making stories. That's it. Period. First stop. There was no record of him trying to explain to the king, Persian king, in case they actually got there. There's nothing like that at all. He just simply said, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it out of your head. They were trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. And he simply just prayed, as Caroline pointed out, now, Lord, please strengthen my hands. Even though Nehemiah was not remotely guilty of such charges, I think I, if I were in his position, it was probably a very huge temptation to talk with them, bring everything out into the open, exert his innocence, trace the source of this scandal, demand that the unjust accusation be withdrawn, and so on. But Nehemiah had the wisdom to discern that their allegation had no basis. In fact, as far from being reported among the nations, had been voiced by nobody but themselves. You know, my friend, it's not easy to handle unjust accusations. And the, the problem is as old as time itself. And sometimes scripture does offer us some helpful insight. If some damaging smear has been made on our character and we are assaulted by slander, we must realize that although painful, the experience can be educated. Teaching something about ourselves, scripture and God. We need to evaluate. Maybe what somebody says something, maybe it's true. And at the same time, Scripture also tells us that we should not retaliate. God's Word forbids retaliation, which only multiplies the sin, and we must not attempt to take any sort of revenge. We are to intercede for those who falsely say all kinds of evil against us. Rumor. People don't like you, they will say something bad about you. Some people are jealous of you, envy of you. They some say some bad things to you too. Uh, some times ago, there was a professor at Princeton University that conducted a series of experiments to demonstrate how quickly rumors actually spread. 
he called six students into his office and in strict confidence informed them that the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were planning to attend a certain university dance. Within a week, this completely fictitious story had reached almost every student on campus. Town officials phoned the university demanding to know why they had not been informed. Press agencies were frantically telephoned for details. And the professor simply said, well, that was only a pleasant rumor. I think a slanderous one traveled even faster. And so here, uh, Nehemiah was very steady. You know, how tempting it must have been for Nehemiah to respond with a detailed defense. But he didn't. And I was just wondering how was he able to carry on without engaging his opponents in battle. Well, I think, I think, I believe, first and foremost, he trusted God. But I think more than that, more than he just trusts God, he believes in truth. He trusted in the truth. He seems to believe that the truth would prevail without the investment of costly time and energy in defending his honor. He believed in the truth. Truth will ultimately prevail without us having to wave our arms in defense until we are exhausted. exhausted. And like Nehemiah, we can trust in the truth because God upholds the truth. And in Psalms, it says, By you I can crush a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The promise of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. And you don't have to ceaselessly try to defend yourself. Your conscience is clear. You trust the truth. Truth will prevail. Like what Alexandra Solzhenitsyn, the Russian novelist, Nobel Prize for Peace, or not peace, a literature, who stood up in his speech quoting a Russian proverb that said, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. And then he said, let me say it again. One word of truth outweighs the whole world. And he has his life to prove it by exposing the gulag that ultimately brought down the entire Soviet Union, contributing, at least a contributing factor, not entirely exclusively, but contributing factor. Uh, most of us use uh, smartphones, um, and uh, you have uh, WhatsApp, and you have a profile of your photos and some words there. And I have a profile, photos, a picture that I took while walking in Westerfold, and then I have these words uh, as my profile words. The best altering, the best mind-altering drug is truth. The best mind-altering drug is truth. It's truth. Although it's hard to speak the truth nowadays, but Scripture commands us to speak the truth in love. Not just speak the truth, which is rather brutal, is without love, but if you speak truth without love, is brutality. If you speak false things, but in love, it's just sentimentality. Nothing, nothing. So the Scripture is always speaking the truth in love. Scripture is very, very balanced, isn't it? In like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Not just I can do all things, 
Not just I can't do anything, but you can do all things only through Christ who gives you strength. And of course, that is in the context of contentment. You actually can live in contentment. Although many times we quote that verse in other contexts, but the specific context is you actually can live in contentment. Because Paul says, well, I can live with plenty, I can live with some, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can live in contentment. True, the, my, the best mind-altering drug is true. And Nehemiah, although they were trying to discredit him, his simply answer is just be firm and allow God and the truth to speak for itself. That's it. No need to waste a lot of emotional energy trying to defend yourself all the time, which sometimes lead to more problems. Just be conscience is clear, keep doing your work, and then that's it. The third thing, there was a plot to disgrace him. Not just only to destroy him, discredit him, but uh, there was an attempt to disgrace him. See, the enemy is not over. Keep on coming, keep on coming, one after another. You know what happened this now? Now, Nehemiah went to see probably one of his, I don't know whether he's his friend or not, but obviously he went, or even maybe uh, a prophet. He said, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mahitabel, I, I find it difficult to pronounce all this name, who was shut in at his home. And when Nehemiah went to see him, and this prophet says this to Nehemiah, he said, come on, let us meet in the house of God. Not just house of God, but inside the temple. And let us close the temple doors. You know why I have to close the temple doors? He said to Nehemiah, because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. you can, can you sense the urgency that this prophet is trying to tell Nehemiah? They make his suggestion, come, come, don't just come to my house. Come to the temple. Not just come to the temple. Come into this holy place, this, this, this temple, inside the temple. Why? Because these people are coming to kill you. Not only they are coming to kill you, they are actually coming to kill you at night. This very night, your life will be in danger. Come on in. And did you know that uh, uh, at this moment, uh, of course, when we read a little bit further, um, Nehemiah began to click and say, ah, this person is not exactly a true prophet. This person is, is, is probably bought by uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and, 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 and all these kind of things. You know? But at that, this time, he still didn't know. And this person's suggestion seems so genuine. But did you know that he said something to Nehemiah that he should not do because nobody can enter into the temple of God other than the priests. It was very specific in the Old Testament law that only the priests are allowed to enter there in the context of saying to the priests, but only you and your sons may serve as priests the Levite tribes, in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I'm giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else comes near the sanctuary is to be put to death. So it's very clear that the priest is suggesting to Nehemiah to enter into a forbidden place that is only exclusively reserved for the priest to go in. And of course, he, 
he knew that uh, the law not only limits entrance to priests, but sentences the transpassers to death. But the second reason why Nehemiah refused to go in, because especially when he said uh, prior to death, this very night they are coming to kill you. You know what was his reply? He was intimidated, uh, under threat at all. He's not afraid of death. He is not afraid of death. If, if the prophet thinks that he will use death as a threat to, to deter uh, Nehemiah, then he got it. Or he underestimated who Nehemiah was. He was unintimidated. Look at what he said. Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? So you got it wrong. You underestimated me. You really think I'm afraid of death? You really think I will save my life and abandon my people? I will not do that. Maybe King David would do that. He said, I will not do that. I'm not going to do that. And then at that moment, it dawned upon him. Ah, I realized that God had not sent him. Because a true prophet will not suggest this kind of things. He realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. And look at what some, uh, uh, Nehemiah pray again. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Lord, vengeance belongs to you, not to me. You deal with them, not me. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. There are other things that Nehemiah didn't spell out in details. But obviously, you can imagine that uh, all kinds of effort has been attempted to try to derail uh, Nehemiah from finishing this project. What a man! What a man! To suggest that Nehemiah hide from danger, Nehemiah responded by pointing to his character and to his role as a leader. Timidity did not fit with Nehemiah's identity, nor did an overriding self-interest. Oh, I'm a leader. I, I can go into the temple. Why not? He did not. Here comes such a balanced man. He was secure in his identity. He's not fear. He's not fearful. A leader should never be fearful. Should not be timid. Should always lead with courage and here here he not only uh, not fearful think about his people but he also have a very very uh, what is it? very right way of evaluating himself he's not self aggrandizing himself too much I'm a leader he knows something he shouldn't do he knows that is the role reserved for the priest not him he knows that. Remember the, uh, um, uh, King Saul while waiting for Samuel to come 
to sacrifice. He took on the role by sacrificing before Samuel came. And Samuel came and said, you have transgressed against the Lord because that is not what you are supposed to do, even though you are a king. That is not your role. That is reserved for the priests. And of course, Samuel was both a judge and a priest and a prophet at the transition time between the judges' era and the kingdom era. And he said, no, you can't do that. Or even the... uh, King Uzziah, remember in Second Chronicles chapter 26, tried to invade the holy precincts and God inflicted him with what? Leprosy. In Second Chronicles 26. While he, he knows Nehemiah did not have an overblown sense of his self-importance, he knew the limits of his personal magnitude and authority. As a leader, he was not a priest and therefore could not enter the temple, even it means to save his own life. So there's a balanced man, isn't it? A strong man, courageous man, yet at the same time, do not inflict himself such a big ego of who he is, entitled to everything just because he's a leader, just because he has a position. What a man. Howard Hendricks passed away a number of years ago. He said there was no identity crisis in the life of Jesus Christ. He, he knew who he was. He knew where he had come from and why he was here and he knew where he was going. And when you are that liberated, then you can serve. If you're that liberated, you can serve. Otherwise, you'll be too concerned with this person, that person, say this, you can't do anything. You'll be wasting a lot of your emotional energy trying to, to do all kinds of things. And here, Nehemiah, uh, was resolute. There was a plan to disgrace him, destroy him, discredit him, but he was undeterred. Undeterred. Not over yet. There's a final one. And there was a plot to undermine him. There was a plot to undermine him. So the war was completed on the 25th of Elul, which is September, in 52 days. 52 days, less than two months, the war was completed. I reckon if uh, Nehemiah was distracted, it would probably take, I don't know, 52 weeks or something, 52 months, or I don't know. Um, but it took 52 days. When all, listen, I love verse 16. See, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. And look at what they say next. Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Can you imagine? When the war has been built, the rest of the people start to marvel because they know it's impossible to finish rebuilding the war in just 52 days. It cannot be based on their own strength. Cannot! It's impossible. It has to come from a divine help. A divine help. A divine help. Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God and therefore they were afraid they lost every self-confidence but even strange even they knew it look at what they did they're not aware this is, this is the most brutal in, also in those days the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah 
and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. Can you imagine the nobles of Judah? Their own very people are conspiring with Tobiah and Sanballat. Their very own. And what is worse is from the tribe of Judah of all, because the tribe of Judah are the very specific one who bring down the line down to Jesus Christ. And, and Judah, the numbers of Judah were the ones. How strange. Even their enemies had to admit that God was at work. The entire project was finished in just 52 days, but the enemies are not through yet. In these closing verses, we see how they continue their tactics of opposing and distracting. And to me, it seems incredible that any Jew would secretly cooperate with the enemy, let alone Jews who were nobles and from the royal tribe of Judah. Why would they do such a treacherous thing? Well, for one thing, it says that there's constant correspondence. They were sending many letters to Tobiah telling him what Nehemiah is doing and then there's replies from Tobiah kept coming to them and probably in that letter trying to influence them for many in Judah were under oath to him. Can you believe that? I pledge my allegiance to you, Tobiah. I will tell you everything Nehemiah is doing because there's commercial involved, there's money involved, they he and the children are intermarried with the Jewish people, his son, all this, the daughter, they are all intermarried into the people there. So instead of seeking the truth, the nobles believed the enemy's lies and became traitors to their own people. Not only they believed in Tobiah lies, some of them even took an oath, as I mentioned, of loyalty to to buy and probably to buy bought them over with some maybe give them gifts buy them this buy them that I don't know and how sad is it when you have that's what they always say when you have friends like this who need the enemies when I first planted the church they were so there are some people in my previous church that hope were praying very hard that I would fail can you believe that They're constantly trying to find out how's it going, you know, people leaving that church, oh how great, you know. He didn't make it, oh great. Well, as I think about the cross, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked down from the cross, looking at the soldiers who nailed him to the cross. There were some dice throwing that went on the foot of the cross. They gamble for some used clothes and sandals. They seek to expand their wardrobe at the expense of Christ. And I, and I wonder what that scene must have looked like to Jesus. What, what was he thinking as he looked down, came for his very own people, the Romans? What emotion did he feel? He must have been amazed. Here were common soldiers witnessing the world's most uncommon event. And they don't even know it. And as far as they were concerned, it was just another Friday morning. And Jesus was just another criminal casting lots for the possession of Christ. Eyes downward and cross forgotten. And sometimes it makes me think of us as a church. And sometimes we play games at the foot of the cross. We compete for members. We scramble for status. We are quick to judge and condemn without sufficient information, competition, selfishness, personal gain and convenience. 
and it is all there. And we don't like what the others did, so we take the sandal and we warn and we walked away. We were so close to the timber and yet so far from the blood. We are so close to the world's most uncommon event and yet we act like common snipers shooting and fighting over sometimes silly opinions. Someone said a Christian loves to major on the minor. Or Magdalene O'Hare, uh, the 80s in America, Say the Christian is the only army in the world that shoots their own people. So close to the cross, and yet so far from Christ. So close to the timber, and yet so far from the blood. Non-stop coming, their own people attacking the work of God. There's no unity in the sense because we are petty over small things. This is not my way. You just can't see the whole big picture of what the church is supposed to be. And here, Nehemiah, press on. And next week you're going to see uh, and subsequent how the temple is finally rebuilt and then the, re- the dedication of the temple is so beautiful. The story began in chapter 2. It says, So I prayed. And then moved down, so I came to Jerusalem. And then, followed by so, they strengthened their hands for this good work. And then, he says, so we build the wall. And then finally, now in chapter 6, we reach the end of this part of the story. So, the wall has finished. Completed. And Nehemiah did not allow other distractions to distract him from the task that is ahead of him. Well, what a man. What a godly man. That God watch over him, guide him, bless him, use him to bring about such a blessing during the exile time. Let me close with this. There's, uh, you may have seen this circulating around. Uh, somebody sent me this called Lessons that we can learn from Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. There's 11 lessons that you can learn from Noah's Ark. Everything I need to know, I learned from Noah's Ark. Number one, don't miss the boat. Number two, remember that we are all in the same boat. Number three, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Number four, stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone may ask you to do something really big. Number five, don't listen to critics. Just get on with the job that needs to be done. Can you imagine me, uh, Noah, I mean, have to receive all this criticism. Number six, build your future on high ground. Number seven, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. I like number eight. Speed isn't always an advantage. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. Number nine, when you are stressed, float a while. Number ten, remember the ark was built by amateurs, the Titanic by professionals. And the last one, which is what I want to close with, no matter the storm, when you are with God, 
there's always a rainbow waiting. No matter the storm, when you are with God, there's always a rainbow waiting for you. May God help us as we focus on what is ahead of us in our own journey as we use our lives to serve God. Father, thank you for Nehemiah. Uh, thank you for uh, the example that you set for us. Thank you for each one of us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you know us. Thank you that no matter the storm when we are with you, there's always a rainbow waiting. As difficult as it is, storm, trials, difficulties, criticism, people try to do all kinds of things to you. Uh, we thank you that you are always with us. That we can rest on the truth that truth always prevail. That we not need to be secure in you and need not have to ceaselessly waste a lot of emotional energy fighting and succumb to the evil one tactic of distracting us. Help us to be united. Thank you that you love us, you know us by name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We bless you. We bless you. Help us to focus, to stay focused on you, to never allow anything to distract us from straying away from this journey that we are taking. We bless you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.